Uh, let's ask God to help us now with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do think, thank you for uh, your gospel. Uh, we thank you for the great change. Uh, faith in our Lord Jesus works in our relationship with you, uh, helping us to know peace with you and the wonder of a hope of living with you forever. Help me to speak your word now truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it as it is, the word of the living God, and to trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before and after picks uh, a beloved of hair replacement specialists, uh, home renovators and uh, weight loss evangelists. And, of course, those before and after picks are used because where true, they illustrate the effectiveness of whatever intervention caused the change. What better way to show that whatever was used really works? Now, Paul says in verses 21 to 22 that every believer in Jesus has a great before and after story. Once, he says, you are alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through his death to present you wholly faultless and blameless before him. And so verse 21 describes every believer's before alienated from God and hostile towards him in our thinking, which then shows itself in our evil actions. Uh, to be alienated from someone speaks of a breakdown, a change for the worse in a relationship that already existed. So once you're in harmony with someone, the relationship was working as it should, but then something happened and now you're persistently out of harmony. You have no dealings with them where once you were welcome and comfortable in their presence and they were welcome and comfortable in your presence, that's no longer the case. Now you avoid each other, have no dealings with each other, you are foreigners to each other and that's us, every one of us, alienated from God. We're not at home, comfortable in the presence of the holy and just God from whom nothing can be hidden. That's humanity's position, and it's been that way since Adam sinned. Pictured in Scripture by Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden, unable to return, the way barred by the angel's flaming sword. But this is not a passive alienation, as if we're aware of it and regret it and were wishing it was otherwise. No, it says humanity, we are hostile in our minds, in our thinking. So there's a conscious antagonism to God in our thinking. We're actively wanting him to be, wanting to be apart from God, to keep distance from him. Humanity is actively pushing God away, not wanting him in our lives as he is, the God whose word should be believed and obeyed. His word now is a word, we don't want to hear, don't want to conform our thinking and behaviour to. Now, how can Paul know that? How can Paul know what's going on in people's thinking? Well, it's not because he's a mind reader. Paul is an observer. And what we're thinking is being expressed, he says, in our actions is seen in the evil we do. 
Now, Paul doesn't list those evil actions here, but in chapter 3 of Colossians, he actually talks of behaviours that Colossians used to practice, knew to be true of themselves. And, well, they're pretty common. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil... Evil does... Ah, I forgot to put Colossians 3 in. Uh, For visitors... Uh, almost a sermon. We, we, it's hard for us here to have a sermon without some glitch in my PowerPoint. So I just thought I'd let you know that just so you know. Nothing has really gone wrong. Uh, but uh, Colossians 3 uh, talks about sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander and filthy language out of your mouth. See, God commands us to love our neighbours And all those things that Paul speaks of as having once characterised the Colossians miss the mark of that love and show hostility to God in our thinking, a rejection of God's good command, of his rule over his creatures' lives. And all common behaviours show a determination to do whatever pleases us without reference to God. When you stop to think, the evidence of hostility to God is actually plain to see in the lives of the Colossians and plain to see in our lives, in our society. It's before us all. Humanity alienated from God, hostile to him in our thinking and showing that in the evil things we do. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that that is everybody's past or present? all characterised by alienation from and hostility towards our Creator. And I ask that because maybe you come from a Christian home and you don't feel that it's actually ever been true of you. You know, you're compliant, you're going along with your parents, you're not openly rebellious. Sure, you're not perfect, but who is, you know, a little selfish at times, a little lazy in helping out, a few little lies when your parents get too nosy. You're just indifferent to God, not thinking about him much. Oh, but you're confident that you could get in touch with God as soon as you decide to take an interest when you want to. Well, actually, your behaviour shows the truth in your life of what Paul says is true of all until we repent and believe the gospel. You see, there are no little sins, for God's not a little God. It is his big love and wisdom you are putting aside in favour of what pleases you in your little selfishness and lies, and that is big contempt. Your indifference to God is hostility, resistance, not as you might think to your imperfect parents and their pushiness, for example, but to God's claim on your life. Actually, this is true of all of us before we're reconciled to God through faith in Jesus We're alienated and hostile in our minds and that's seen in what we do. Now, do you think that's serious? Why do you think it's just an irrelevance? Because it doesn't really matter what you think about God because that's what our society believes. It doesn't really matter what you think about God. Well, it is serious for the present and the future for individuals and society 
to be alienated from God and hostile in our minds, it's serious for you. See, in Romans 1, Paul outlines the progress of hostility to God in our thinking, of refusing to honour God in our minds. And if you know Romans 1, there's a logical progress from the debasing of our humanity in idolatry to the confusion of relationships between men and women and then to the corruption of our lives and society. So Paul writes there, because they didn't think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving and unmerciful. That's where hostility to God ends you up. Ends our society, brings our society. That's what it brings our society to. And actually, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but even applaud others who practice them. You see, there's a degeneration not just in society but in our own lives. The outcome of alienation from God is that we end up doing things we know God condemns hardening our hearts to defy his judgments and so further corrupting our characters. Being alienated from and hostile to our creator is serious for our present and it's serious for our future because how do you think being the enemy of God, living in hostility towards him, will turn out? You see, it says of the creator, Psalm 135, that he makes lightning for the rain and brings the wind from his storehouses. And Psalm 104, he makes the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. In the destructive wind that went across our state last Tuesday, we can catch a glimpse of the tiniest fraction of God's power and it's humbled us. A people who are so confident of our capacity to manage and maintain our prosperity humbled us in a moment. Being God's enemies won't work out. And just because we want him out of our lives doesn't mean he stopped being the Lord of his creation who will bring order and justice to it. And God has warned us that he'll bring a day of judgment when in Isaiah's words the pride of humanity will be humbled and human loftiness brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day to be alienated and hostile in your minds. Doing evil in God's sight is serious. And it's actually the natural condition of all people, of all Adam's children. But that is no longer the Colossian situation and it is not any believer's situation. That was our before. But now believing the gospel, it says we have been reconciled to God reconciled by Christ's physical body through his death. Now, to be reconciled is to have our alienation overcome. It's to go from being enemies to friends. To be reconciled to God is to have had the relationship with God restored to one of harmony, to again be welcoming God's presence at home there. And we experience reconciliation. We understand it, don't we, from our own relationships. 
So, for example, we might have promised our friend or spouse to show up and they were counting on us being there, you know, either at the surgery or at the door of the theatre, and we just failed to do so. Oh, it wasn't because the trains were out, but because we let ourselves get absorbed in our work or playing our game or we just didn't prioritise it. And when the person to whom we made the promise gets cross with us, as they will, we just make lame excuses or talk about how busy we are and kind of blame them for expecting us to do what we said or more, and we, of course, more or less destroy the relationship. And when we've done that, we've wronged the other person. They're rightly angry and distant with us and it's not a comfortable place, is it? But hopefully, if that's you, you get over yourself and your pride that never likes thinking that you're in the wrong and you admit that you're in the wrong, apologise and commit to not doing that again and the person forgives you. You are reconciled. The distance between you removed by repentance and forgiveness and it feels good. Or you might have borrowed a couple of hundred dollars from a friend and forgotten to pay it back and then... You know, the interest rate goes up or the car overheats and you crack the head or you lose your job, you know, whatever, and you've got no cash and the other person asks you for the money back because interest rates have gone up for them as well and you start avoiding them, not returning their phone calls, staying away from any gathering you think they might be at. And it all gets a bit uncomfortable because he or she was a good mate until you finally contact them and explain and admit you can't pay it back and they tell you not to worry about it. Forgive you the debt. And your mates again. Reconcile because the cause of the distance between you has been overcome, overcome by being forgiven. To be reconciled is good. And to be reconciled to God is very good. You can get a, a kind of feel for that from Romans 5 where Paul speaks to people he can describe later in Verse 10, as people who had been once God's enemies but now reconciled to him through faith in the Lord Jesus. And you see in that part of Romans 5 that the life of the reconciled is marked by peace with God, no longer at war with him. Now think how relieved the people in Gaza will be when peace is declared. It would be great, won't it? But God is a much more powerful enemy than the Israelis. And the peace we have with him is much more than the cessation of hostility. Peace means he's no longer against us, but for us. And we're safe and secure in his presence, and that means we have a share in the abundance of his life and blessing. Peace with God's wonderful. And the reconciled, says Paul, are people who can be confident of God's grace towards them. We stand in grace. That's where we're located now in God's eyes, in the place of his favour always. And they have a hope of the glory of God to share in the experience of his presence and reconciled to God. Well, our presence transforms so that verse 3, even hard things, suffering, are purposeful and serves God's good purposes for our lives, working character and hope in us. To have once been alienated from God and his enemies in our thinking to now being reconciled to God is a huge change. It's a change for the better. It's a complete reversal of our state. So how did this change, this reconciliation happen? What was the effective intervention? 
that the believers before and after witnesses to? How did this change for the better come about? Well, it wasn't anything we have done. It doesn't happen because of any initiative of those who are hostile to God. It actually depends on God's initiative, though he is the one who's been wronged. Reconciliation has happened, writes Paul, by Christ's physical body through his death. It's through the death of Christ. Christ's death is the grounds of our reconciliation to God. But why is it by Christ's death? Why aren't we reconciled just by being forgiven, like the bloke who owed the money who was just forgiven by his mate? Well, for us, it is just being forgiven. We don't do anything that causes God to be reconciled to us. We just receive the forgiveness God offers in the gospel to all who believe in Jesus. But there is always a cost to forgiving someone. If, as in the illustration, you were to forgive someone a $200 debt, well, you lose the $200 gone for good. You carry the cost of forgiving, of reconciling your indebted friend to yourself. Christ's death is the cost God pays to forgive us. You see, the cost of our sin of living in hostility to God in thought and action is death. That was the cost of the first disobedience. Remember, God had said to Adam, on the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And he and we have died. Oh, and death is the cost of all disobedience. The wages, the reward of sin is death. But death is not an arbitrary cost that can be detached from our disobedience. Death is inseparable from defying God's word by disobeying it. Imagine a tree saying to a branch which is entertaining independence from the tree. You know, the tree says, cut yourself off from me and you will die. And if the branch went ahead and somehow amputated itself from the tree, it would die. And that death's not an extra. It's just the inevitable outcome because it's cut itself off from the source of of its life. God alone has life in himself. And he is the source of all life, of the life of all creatures. All are dependent for their life on him. Our life depends on him. But our connection to the life of God's not a physical connection like a tree and its branches. Humanity was related to God, connected to God through faith in and obedience to God's word. When Adam rejected God's word, disobeyed God's law, he cut himself and all his descendants off from God and we die. And we keep on living in that disbelief and disobedience to God We keep on living in death. The cost of our sin, of our not believing or obeying God's word, is death. And God can't set aside his law, set aside the authority of his word as if his word was something separate, detachable from him. His word, including his law, is an expression of his being, of who he is. And it's essential for relationship to him. He can't be without his word. God cannot 
and will not stop being the God. He is the God who made all things by his word, whose word will always be fulfilled, its sentence always executed. And you know, even though that means death for sinners, for you and I, unless we repent and believe, God's commitment to his word (coughs) is a good thing for his creatures. It's a good thing for us. See, our rebellion against our creator by defying his word has, in a sense, done damage to the fabric of the universe. It's disordered creation by rejecting the rule of God through his word, the word that brought creation into being and sustains it in being. For God to then deny his word would be to plunge the universe into chaos and darkness and to let death reign. In upholding his word, in ensuring the cost of disobeying it is paid. God's actually maintaining the order of creation. He's maintaining the only context in which any life and all life can flourish, which means in forgiving our sins, not demanding we pay the cost of our disobedience. God is committing himself to uphold his word by paying the cost on our behalf. And he does that not because there's any compulsion, purely out of love, grace. And he does it in the death of Jesus. And it is God paying the cost. Jesus is the one in whom, as you've heard, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. He is fully identified with God just as in taking on a body of flesh, he is the one who is fully identified with us. And that's why Paul says he dies in the body of his flesh, his physical body. It's actually the body of his flesh. Paul's stressing that Jesus shares our fleshly life so that the death he dies is our death. But Jesus is the man who never sinned. In dying on the cross, suffering there the death of a lawbreaker, for death on the cross is the death of one cursed by the law. Jesus was not dying for his own sin, but ours, dying the death we deserved. Those who believe in him are united with him on that cross, have died with him there, so that the sentence of God's word has been carried out in him. The obstacle to peace with God has now been removed, removed by God himself, God in Christ, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells, is bearing the consequences of our sin and his death is a death of infinite and eternal effectiveness, paying the cost of forgiving all our sin. And sin on the cross has done its worst, hasn't it? Killing the best but it actually has no power to undo God, no power to contain his life, which is our life. Jesus is raised from the dead, and that life he has is also now shared with those who are joined to Christ by faith, his life, our life. How are we reconciled? God reconciles believers to himself through Christ's death on the cross, removing forever the barrier to peace our sin and the judgment it deserves, forgiving 
while upholding his true and just word, his life-giving word. Once we were alienated, hostile to God, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. You know, those two lines actually sum up the effect of Christ's death for those like the Colossians, like many of you who have believed the gospel, that Christ has died for our sins and been raised to life and now reigns with authority over all things. By God's gracious action in Christ, believers are reconciled to God and all can be reconciled to God. So if you're not a believer in Jesus, you too can be reconciled. You don't need to stay alienated from God. You can be reconciled to God if you repent and believe that gospel, that Jesus has died for your sins and God has raised him from the dead and he lives to forgive you. And when you consider the consequences of being alienated from God, that is great good news, isn't it? But you know, our being reconciled to God through Christ's death also means if you're a believer, you have a great before and after story, a story to be thankful for, a story worth sharing. See, sometimes we can think it's only those with dramatic conversion stories who have a story worth sharing. You know, I was a drug addict who'd murdered five people and I'd, you know, I was on life in waiting on death row and, you know, ah, not so. If that's not you, be grateful, okay? A believer, if you know the truth of what Paul says here, you actually know your story is a story of wonderful change. See, if you know your sin, can see your heart, see how destructive your sin's been in robbing you of peace and life and how rightly it's condemned. And if you know and live each day with the wonderful reality of being at peace with the living, almighty, holy God and having a sure hope, you have a great before and after story. A great story. More, you've got a wonderful love story because the intervention that wrought this great change is Christ giving his life for his people, giving his life because He's loved us freely. And that's a story worth sharing, isn't it? story every believer has, a story worth sharing. But our before and after story, says Paul here, is not the believer's whole story. For we were reconciled to God now so that we can share in the future God has prepared for all his people. Now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless, blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel you heard. See, the purpose of our being reconciled to God now through faith in the, through the death of Christ is that we can stand before God then on the judgment day and forever, holy, faultless and blameless. And Paul's piling on images there from Israel's Old Testament worship and from the law courts to help us see how effective the work of Christ on the cross is. 
and to emphasise that we will be acceptable to God, welcome in his presence when Christ returns and the new heaven and earth are unveiled never to return to the dominion of darkness and death. Now words like holy, faultless, blameless may not immediately resonate with you. But Paul is saying that the goal of our present reconciliation to God by Christ is a glorious future secured by Christ's death where we will be those who do not need to fear the last judgment and can live forever in God's presence. And that is such a glorious goal. But it's one sometimes that, well, we fail to feel as glorious because we've got so used to a world of sin and death, our imaginations can fail us when we try and picture a life and a world without them. So even when we have a word picture of it, as we do in Revelation 21 to 22, which itself is bringing many threads of Old Testament prophecy that speak of the good of that age to come, even when we've got that word picture, sometimes we fail to feel how glorious it is to be holy, blameless, irreproachable before God. So let me just give you a taste of that future so you can... Feel some of the goodness of the hope being reconciled to God gives us. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people's. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief will be no more. Crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Brothers and sisters, life is short. As I'm getting towards the end of it, I really feel that. Life's short, and it's enmeshed in death from its very beginning to come to a day when death is no more, when every tear is wiped away and all things are made new is such a great hope. And it's the hope of the reconciled. And God tells us here, how we can come to the fulfilment of that hope, how we can make it certain. We get to our goal by staying put in Christ. Staying put. Right? If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel you heard, that's how you get to your goal. Remain in the faith, established, founded firm. (coughs) You see, it's one of the great truths of the Christian life, and I hope you know it. You make progress by staying put. That's right, you make progress by staying put in the faith. Uh, The word translated remain or continue has the sense of remaining in a place or or locality. It's a spatial metaphor. And the locality in which you must stay is the faith. Now, the faith here embraces, in a sense, three elements. 
It embraces what is believed. In this case, the contents of the gospel of Jesus, what it says of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. The truths Paul is teaching in Colossians in speaking of Jesus' greatness, of how, for example, as you heard, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile everything to himself. So the faith here embraces what is believed, what's believed about Jesus. But it also embraces the activity of believing. We come to our goal if we keep on believing and the consequences of believing, the expression of the faith in our lives, what Paul will write of in chapter 3. We have to stay put in the faith. And Paul adds some pictures to describe that staying put to help us see the sense of it. He calls us to be grounded and steadfast or stable and steadfast. And both those words he uses comes from the world of building. The first one, grounded, has the sense of being founded upon, of having a solid foundation. And the next was applied to what you built on the foundation of it being solid. And so together they describe a house which because it's built on a good foundation is stable, strong and secure. So we stay put not by inactivity but by building carefully on the foundation of the gospel on Christ to come to our goal, what we believe and the way we live are to be increasingly conformed to Jesus, to his reality and his teaching as we're taught them in the gospel preached by the apostles. (coughs) And he adds, we're not to shift away from the hope of the gospel that we've heard. Now, as every homeowner knows, to shift from the foundation, if it happens to you, Well, that's kind of disastrous, isn't it? And that is Paul's point. To move from the gospel of Jesus' greatness and his finished work is to lose. He's the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. And so you can't know more of God than you can know in Jesus. And Jesus has reconciled us. You can't get closer to God than you are in Christ. But notice Paul highlights here the hope of the gospel. No one else can bring us security on the last day, the security of being holy, faultless, blameless. No one else will raise us from the dead, joined to Christ in his death and rising. Paul can say, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. It's only by faith in the gospel preached by the apostles, the gospel they heard from Ephesus, that we are united with Christ. And as and, <coughs> and so it's only in him we will rise. And just as Christ is unique and no one else dwells, the fullness of God dwell and what he does on the cross is uniquely effective, there will be no other gospel. That's Paul's point when he writes, the gospel's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. You see, Paul's not making an observation about the physical spread of the gospel. We know Paul himself was aware of places where the gospel hadn't been preached and he wanted to go so he could write to the Romans, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I'll not build on anyone else's foundation. No, Paul's point 
is that there is no other gospel than the gospel of Christ because it concerns all creation, proclaiming what God has accomplished in Christ for all and for all time. It's the message of how God has reconciled all things to himself in Christ. And because of that, there is no other message for all creation. We come to our goal by staying put in the faith. Patient perseverance, what Paul, remember, asked the Colossians, prayed for for the Colossians in his prayer, is the mark of genuine faith. Now, counterfeit faith can look the same at the beginning, but so often it's restless, wanting more or something other than the hope of the gospel, and it moves away from the faith, from Christ to its own destruction. Genuine faith stays put because in Christ we have it all. And we need to hear Paul telling us to stay put in the gospel. For our world is full of those who want us to move away from Christ and the hope he brings. Those who want to add more to what we need to believe and do other than just believe in Christ. See, that actually is the issue Paul is facing in Colossians and we'll take up with them in chapter 2. You know, people who are teaching that believers need to do more and basing their teaching on access to a visionary realm, the visions they claim to have seen. Oh, and it's an issue believers have faced throughout history. Think Islam or the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, all claiming you need more than Christ and all basing their extra on visions they claim to have had and they'll be more like them. But to move from Christ is to lose. So, believer... You and I can be thankful, hopefully, for our before and after story. It's real and rich. It's a story worth sharing because everyone is born into that alienation and hostility to God and only Christ can bring them reconciliation with the living God and that glorious hope of living in his presence forever. So be determined to remain in the faith for that is the means God gives us to enjoy that all, to enjoy all that Christ has achieved for us now and forever. And you can remain in the faith by seeking to build on the foundation of the gospel, by growing in knowledge of the greatness of Jesus, of who he is and what he's done. And if that's not what you're doing, I hope it is what you are actively pursuing. Well, if you're not, a good way to start is actually by paying to Colossians, attention to Colossians. For the rest of this letter is Paul helping the Colossians see Jesus' greatness and the complete sufficiency of what he's done to save us completely. It's a good place to start. So seek to build on the foundation of the gospel by growing in knowledge of the greatness of Jesus. Oh, and you can remain in the faith by praying for yourself and others what Paul prayed for in Colossians 1, that we grow in knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we live a life worthy of him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened for patience and perseverance with joy. It's a great pray, prayer to pray. Oh, and yes, we can remain in the faith by going beyond knowing that we can be thankful and actually practising thanksgiving daily. Thanksgiving, that 
though we were once alienated from God and hostile to him, now believing the gospel, you are reconciled to God, at peace with him, and we will be among those trusting Jesus who are wholly faultless and blameless on the great day when the Lord appears in glory. You see, not only has every believer a great before and after story to tell, every believer has every day, whatever else is happening in our lives, a cause of abundant thanksgiving to the mercy, merciful and loving God who has reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. Uh, Let's pray. And after, Megan will come and pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy that those of us who trust the Lord Jesus would know the wonder of being reconciled to you through his death. We pray that uh, we would know the comfort of the hope of being wholly blameless and irreproachable before you on that day and trusting the Lord Jesus, knowing his greatness and knowing the complete sufficiency of what he's done for us on the cross, we will be those people who are determined to remain in the faith until the last day. And Father, we pray that uh, those who don't know the joy of being reconciled uh, to our Lord Jesus, uh, we pray for them that you would turn their hearts, that they would see that hostility to God has no future, but that you are gracious and forgiving. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.